Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Jan Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, curators and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. Ahali refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. It is about a culture of being together, and Ahali generates knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So, welcome to Ahali Conversations. In this episode, we are hosting the curator, artist, writer and educator Paul O'Neill. Paul is currently the artistic director of Publix, a curatorial agency with a dedicated library, event space and reading room in Helsinki, Finland. Publix follows and expands on Paul's critical and social thinking on contemporary art, publicness and with a much more open and participatory stance. Prior to Publix, Paul has held numerous curatorial and research positions over the years and he has been teaching on many curatorial and visual arts programs in Europe, Britain and the USA. Before moving to Helsinki, he was the director of the Curatorial Studies program and the Hessel Museum of Art at the Bard College in upstate New York. He has co-curated over 60 projects and exhibitions across the world, but his writing and publishing is a whole other feat. He has edited volumes on curating and contemporary art, each marking definitive moments in recent history. Paul is someone who is very attentive and elaborate in figuring out and shaping thought around the curatorial and artistic work. Together, we delve into his take on what publics mean and discuss the importance of opening up spaces of contact and sites for working together. We also scrutinize the state of art institutions today and their future, along with hearing his take on the convergence of exhibition making and public programming along with insights on establishing and running an institution or an art space today. We will be releasing this conversation in two parts, something we've never done before, but there was so much valuable insight in the Q&A session that I thought this time it deserves its own space. As always, you'll find an extensive list of references on the concepts and people we mention in our episode notes, so make sure to check them out for further links. For the more visually oriented, we are sharing images of works that are mentioned in our Instagram account, ahali.podcast. So with that note, let's dive into our conversation with Paul O'Neill. Welcome, Paul. First, maybe let me ask you, where do we find you as in location-wise and also maybe as a state of mind? Hi, hi, Jan. Uh, nice to see you again, as always. And hi, everybody. I'm in currently in Helsinki. I'm in my back room and I just finished a full day at Publix where I am currently artistic director and currently working with my relatively small team, trying to navigate thinking of the next three years, actually. Uh, we're trying to design and write a strategy for a three-year program at a moment where I think small and medium-scale organizations are perhaps quite vulnerable uh, post-COVID, but also more generally in terms of kind of shift in maybe national and maybe global policies toward towards culture, shall we say, you know, big Big seems to prevail in in some ways, and uh, we are very small, and but also 
tend to try and do quite large projects with much larger organizations. And sometimes we are, in a way, the smaller organization trying to support even more vulnerable or more precarious uh, organizations than ourselves. So this is this is where my head has been today somewhat uh, in this space and trying to think of the future, but also at a moment where it f- Publix feels in a way like the right project uh, or the right curatorial entity. It's a good starting point because also I'm very curious about Publix and you now is three years old, I guess. Is that correct? I've been in Helsinki now four and a half years, uh, nearly four and a half years. And I inherited a, a very interesting association called Checkpoint Helsinki, which was established sometime before I arrived, maybe I think 2013, which was set up to resist the Guggenheim Museum coming to coming to Helsinki, coming to Finland. And somehow within that mode of resistance or that mode of um, objection to, to this large infrastructure arriving in the city, um, Checkpoint managed to establish itself as, a, as an alternative to this museum uh, model and in a way did lots of great things and then maybe somewhat uh, ran out of ideas but also ran out of resources and energy you know it takes a lot lot of energy to mobilize um, a very large kind of community or constituency of activists and, and and artists and independent cultural workers so i i was brought in just over four years ago to, in a way, rethink the organization, but then also structure it slightly differently. And Publix found a space in a kind of historically working class neighborhood, which is very, very much part of the the kind of like geographical center of the city that is residential center of the city called Valila. It's also where the art academy is and also where a lot of Cultural infrastructure is such as studio spaces for artists, but also it's in it's in a process of maybe being a little bit gentrified or regenerated also. But Publix now has a physical space, uh, which Checkpoint Helsinki did not. So we have a physical space which has sometimes some program in its public events, uh, talks, book launches. We have a library of about 8,000 publications, uh, very much focused on the relationship between art and publicness and it's constantly it's a living library so it's very much uh, based on who who works in the library who uses the library who spends time there who needs to access uh, knowledge in different ways and the library is is very much at the core of our identity physically it's quite an imposing uh, presence it's quite beautifully designed by a collective called Julia. And then also we use the library as a physical space for gatherings, for exhibitions, for projects. I think the starting from the library really is interesting. And even like in my own kind of trajectory, I studied in Ankara. There was not really a kind of like possibility of encountering art other than the every once or two years, the Istanbul Biennial. And the library had become my point of encounter and also point of departure. And I think that there's really something that's valuable about starting with the library. And there is also one other thing that you are doing with regards to positioning the institution or the small art space or organization is the titling as publics. On the one hand, this plurality, but also at the same time, it feels to me that it's not a kind of 
let's say vague cloud but a kind of specific multiplicity i think maybe firstly about the the idea of setting up establishing the institution or the organization around the library i think it was you know there are many artists like yourself uh, and uh, you know lean gillick and katrin bohm but then also organizations like Casco or Bedon Salon in, in France or Savi in Berlin and others like this idea of like setting a setting to use your terms, but like setting a setting within which uh, many things can kind of flow uh, through the kind of structures of the architecture, but also through the structures of gathering that the library enables. So the library is kind of like physical and also a mental space to organize people and ideas in different ways because the book or the single book on the shelf is very evidently part of our design identity but it's also very much part of our thinking like what happens when you have a single book on the shelf and then you place another book next to it you know how does knowledge start to kind of like gather a pace but then also how how is it contested and challenged over time by its readers or by those who who move the books from on the shelf and so on. So it's a very Benjaminian idea also, maybe in terms of thinking about memory and thinking about small histories. But I also think it's, it enables us to do all the things that libraries can potentially do, like libraries have books, they have publications, they have readers. They have people who are reading aloud. There are people who are reading softly. They're, they're also quiet spaces. So we do we have a lot of programming around listening um, where, where, where we invite uh, musicians or sound artists or, or readers to perform to us or to present with us and, and where we, we simply listen uh, to them and we listen to each other in the, in the space. And this became a very maybe important part of our program over the last couple of years, particularly during the various opening and closing of uh, lockdown due to the pandemic and, and so on. But then also it enables us to constantly reinvigorate different publics and different readers. So it's not only like publics as a kind of a pluralistic concept, but it's also thinking about groups of people imagined and actualized um, in the library through our kind of program of, of commissioning artists to maybe respond to the library, but then also inviting people like from Chris Krauss to uh, Cynthia Cruz is doing a book launch in, in, in June with us to talk about class and, and access and money. Uh, but then, you know, it, the book enables us to program and to commission around around the books uh, for book launches, book events, readings, performances and, and, and so on. And in a way, this idea of, you know, multiple gatherings that that the kind of the bookshelves enable the plurality of books that are on the shelves, but also the plurality of readers brought us to thinking that we're very keen, myself and Elisa Savanto, who's, who's the kind of like, in a way, the co-director of the organization, although her title is managing Especially with the idea of the para hosting, maybe we can hear a bit from you about that. So how the organization hosts and how the organization opens itself up to and also opens itself up to collaboration with various publics, various actors. So maybe we can touch a bit on the para hosting because that sounds like a really interesting approach. Para hosting emerged out of thinking about, well, we didn't want to have a space whereby we knew everybody. We didn't want to have space where we knew when we opened the doors that 
everybody that came in, we, it would be predictable who they were. And also this was a response not only to the art world, but also to the immediate conditions of Helsinki, which is even pre-COVID transitional city in that way. It's a bit of a brain drain. We have a lot of young people coming in to study in, in, in the various universities. We also have a lot of like visitors to the city um, either passing through on the way somewhere else or, or tapping into the kind of very rich design and ecological uh, history of the country and also of the city. So we were very keen to try and like additionally pluralize uh, our, our audiences or our, our, our publics. And para hosting was maybe emerged out of our very first listening session where we invited uh, lots of different protagonists, actors, agencies, organizations, artists, filmmakers, thinkers, writers, uh, activists from across Finland to to sit around the table and to spend 10 minutes listening to each other, not in dialogue, but literally just listening to each other speaking for 10 minutes. And, and out of this listening session or a couple of listening sessions, there was a clear emphasis on a lack of space, like physical space to do things quite quickly, but also a lack of uh, support for doing like pop-up things or urgent moments of practice or, or spaces where things could happen without, you know, thinking of larger institutionals and, you know, very elongated timelines or the stresses and strains that maybe larger institutions place on their invited guests and so forth. So para hosting is really a way also in which publics uh, can re reorganize itself uh, around the ideas and interests of other curatorial protagonists. So um, we we host a lot of projects. Sometimes it's uh, it could be a talk. Sometimes it can be a residency. Sometimes it can be a year long program where we hosted a year-long program with Shimmer Gallery from Rotterdam. We're currently para-hosting an organization called Latitudes from Barcelona and working with Macba and Laia Estruk and some other artists. But uh, it also means that we, for mostly para-hosting involves us really looking at or listening to what the organization or the proposer, the para guest needs for a short period of time. And then we see if we can we can help them realize their, their project. I think it's like interesting in the way that it also kind of expand on the notion of positioning and authorship, perhaps, especially with regards to like most often what is the case with small and medium scale art organizations is that they become a kind of community, which is very valuable. But that may end up becoming very, let's say, inward looking or become a clique almost in its own. So that's trying to or being open to kind of expand that or break that apart. I think really interesting. And now in, in the beginning, you also touched on the, let's say, immediate future or the near future of the art institution and its struggles. And I've also come across recently where you were commenting on the core necessities of positioning an art institution today. And if I'm quoting correctly, you were mentioning it being less white, more open, definitely transdisciplinary, more involved in listening, which you just also touched on, and also like being in a position to challenge culture and current cultural trends or challenging the culture in general. So maybe we can 
kind of link that to a more general question about institutions in your view, uh, whether they are small, medium or whether they are larger scale, what do you think is awaiting the institutions today? Like what are the kind of maybe possibilities for their future? I'm very much um, pro-institution, um, but, on, but only uh, with, 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 with various limitations <laughs> and with lots of, lots of hesitancy. But I, what I mean by being pro-institution, I'm very resistant to this catch-all negativity or this catch-all kind of institutional critique position that, that, that we have inherited within the contemporary art field and also within kind of various critical discourses around power and, and structures of power. Um, I think it's, it's important to learn, learn from all of those critiques, but at the same time, not to just tear down all of the institutions with nothing to replace them because institutions take many years to be built. And also in building those institutions, they also create resources and they potentially can create resources and structures of support for many different communities. And uh, I mean, the problem I think with some of the maybe larger institutions is that they're maybe less, no longer valid, or maybe that their internal logic is about um, keeping things as they are rather than mobilizing change or thinking about how they can respond to to the world as it as it is constantly in flux and, and and in need of transformation and you know we have seen change and also resistance to that change in many different different ways over the last uh, two to three years from black lives matter to me too movements to kind of you know, the unbleaching of toxic, you know, mega institutional structures in Western contexts and so so on. But I, I also think that what do we have to replace these institutions if we are to build our own? How do we build our own differently? And how do we think about what that would mean if we were to build our own? Who's going to be responsible for all the things that, that none of us really want to do, which is, <laughs> you know, the kind of like the bureaucracy and the management and the administration and, and also the fundraising and also the constant, you know, support that less secure and less, um, maybe less supported individuals or communities might, might need, like not only how do we support them, but also who's going to do that work, which is necessary. And, you know, I, I really think that, you know, when Mary Douglas is uh, writing on how institutions think, what, what she was very clear about is that we already think institutionally it is, with, it is within us and it is us that need to be challenged. We need to challenge ourselves and we also need to be open to be challenged from without, from outside of ourselves, because we're already in a way institutionalized from the moment of our birth. To be born is, is already to be institutionalized, to be supported by the infrastructures of institution, whether it be hospitals, whether it be church, whether it be state, whether it be family, whether it be domesticity, whether it be, you know, motherhood, uh, and patriarchy and all of these things were already immediately thinking institutionally <laughs> uh, at, at a very kind of macro level as uh, as soon as we're like you know we entered the world of society and of the social structures that institutions both enable and in a way stabilize so i think that for for me it's i think thinking institutionally now is is really urgent and really really important and and having an opportunity like publics to try to mobilize some of this thinking in a way feels quite important and also feels quite urgent i think the question of that we're thinking at the moment 
we're organizing a conference or a symposium in uh, June, just in a few weeks' time, as we're launching a kind of an online platform called Shape Helsinki. Uh, Shape is small Helsinki art project event spaces, um, but it's more like a platform of 105 small to medium scale organizations. Um, it's a directory of what's happening in the city, but it's also possibly a means to think about how we could cooperate and collaborate together, uh, how we could work together, support one another. And, and I think that some of the questions that are coming up for us that are really difficult to open out and to discuss are, are the questions of class, money, access, you know, as well as all, all of the issues around race and gender and inequality and, um, you know, the war that's on our borders and all these various other things that are very mobilizing in terms of like uh, political discourses, but, but the questions of how institutions engage with and talk about money and talk about class and talk about access and talk about privilege. And these are some of the things that we're trying to maybe unpick in the next, as the next part of our program. Yeah, that's really interesting. And also like this Coming together of smaller entities has been uh, a topic that's occurred in our past conversations as well. It was more in the case of smaller, let's say, pedagogical programs coming into some sort of alliance or some sort of a network. And I think that maybe what's interesting in your case is that you, from the late 90s, like Multiples X, which was something you, in a way, very like bottom-up, self-organized as a small institution, but then you've had experience in quite uh, relatively larger scale institutions, both in the university context and also in museum context. And then now you're back into a kind of ground up positions in a sense, but with that knowing how, as Kelly Sterling mentioned, so you have the knowing how of how to deal with the certain realities and you are maybe much more in a sense aware of the necessities, like the bare necessities of a cultural institution to survive, let alone sustain itself. So how do you see this kind of your own personal experience and like what that brings, what that takes away? I think maybe there, there's part of me that constantly wants to like switch out, like to switch out the, the relationship completely and utterly between the structures of support and the impact that certain institutions of certain scale have. What I mean by that, that it will be, you know, in a very, in a, on a very kind of romantic, maybe idealized level to be able to switch out the resources of large scale institutions with tiny, tiny organizations and the other way around to use the resources of intellectual and knowledge and accelerated and also durational embedded resources of small scale organizations with the support of you know, of the wealth, financial and structurally of larger institutions. But of course, that's not, not possible because they, <laughs> they keep each other, they keep each other in check, they keep each other in the same place. And then you, in a way, this tension that you have constantly between like state and, and capital, uh, you know, is, an, is another kind of like maybe 
kind of dialectic that I think is also kind of like constantly challenging me at the moment, because I also believe in the idea of the state, but I also, you know, I believe in the state as a kind of, as a mobilizing, potentially self-determining space of sovereignty for the citizens of that state. And also as some kind of, you know, final mode of resistance to kind of aggressive capitalism or aggressive neoliberalism. But at the same time, you know, the state often is its default is nationalism and its default is very quickly the rise of nationalism into this more kind of fascistic right-wing kind of uh, modus of relationship between the individual and the collective and this is like maybe also in my mind around when thinking about small to large scale institutions, the possibility of switch, switching them out. It's a little bit like, you know, it's very important, I think, for us to, to still have imaginary spaces that are actualized, such as what happens when we when we realize an exhibition or when we teach a class or when we publish a book, you know, these spaces where ideas can be mobilized and can, can kind of escape from the overly managerial, overly administrated ways in which we try to stay going or stay moving or stay in place in a way. And I think those spaces of imagination are really important as kind of like engines of engines of like support for for the more kind of structural um, organizational work that that is needed for for institutional building and for but yeah, I'm, I do have this fantasy. Where like, what would it be like, really? I'm, I'm not the only one who's been thinking these these ideas around switching out, you know, scale, different scales with one another. And, and many, many organizations have, have tried to do that before they become big organizations or before they collapse under the weight of the wealth, the financial wealth of, of a larger institution, or they, they grow too big for themselves or and this is, and they bloat or, or whatever. But I think it's, I think it's always, you know, for me, uh, currently I'm, you know, after being at Bard for four years or having a really, really great time there, but also realizing that I wanted my practice to become in a way more public again, to be more kind of engaged with the immediate context within which I was uh, wanting to realize projects and also where teaching is, is a more, in a way, a more immediate and more flexible um, practice within a smaller scale organization. When people come in, in through the doors of publics, you know, in a way teaching is already happening because it's not, and it's not about like formalizing one's knowledge or it's, it's maybe about breaking down some of those, some of the hierarchical structures, but yeah. And also like geographically or location wise, like this idea of the remoteness, both for the university campus or the museum, in the case of the art museum, which I visited, this notion of remoteness versus being embedded in a kind of much entangled and meshed situation physically and geographically as well. Also, when you talk about exhibitions, you refer to this notion of contact, right? I remember. Yeah, yes. This notion of contact. Or when you talk about the library, this contact between multiple books and how you can also have random encounters when you are picking up one book, you can also get the other book kind of contact or in a curatorial practice or in the case of exhibition making, how the contact between various works and various bodies that are going through that space happen. So that seems to me also this yearning for a contact possibly. I'm just reading into what you are saying. 
but also there was something important that you said this changing places or switching out of the large and the smaller institutions and it's a kind of pity i think because when the whole relevancy in a sense of the cultural institutions is under scrutiny from again a more kind of right wing mentality or market driven mentality there seems to be also a lot of fight amongst the smaller and larger institutions and i can already imagine maybe i'm projecting negatively but like if a large institution were to do that the immediate criticism could come that oh you are like recuperating or you are exploiting the smaller institutions and stuff like that so sometimes we also dive too deep into the critical positions and the criticality and we lose that cautious optimism in a sense and focus more on the yeah i mean there is value in criticality of course obviously i mean i mean i think you know the the critique of co-option or the critique of the energies of self-organization or that are co-opted or um, absorbed by larger institutional structures and and in a way translated or transmuted into practices that have very little relationship with the ethos or the politics of the original thinking or the original energies of 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 uh, the the self-organization or the smaller scale thinking but at the same time i think it's also <laughs> um the greatest i think threat to to small scale organizations and to self organization or collective organizing is is other small scale organizations because of the neoliberal economy the kind of competitive nature of smaller scale organizations having to compete with one another for for limited resources in a way in which the larger scale museums and so on and particularly collection based museums that are tax havens for for the rich or that are like historic history producing institutions and have so many stakeholders that enable the mobilization of capital around the collection or the mobilization of capital around the directorship and security of these bigger institutions this is a very different kind of competitiveness to what happens with smaller scale organizations particularly within the art world regionally and then also internationally i mean we the art world is in a way a potentially generative and and a potentially you know productive space for change certainly for me that's why i've decided to be part of it but at the same time it can be quite bitchy and quite competitive and quite restrictive and also very toxic in terms of how people treat one another <laughs> and also how the structures of competition are organized uh, and this is not only from like awards to grant applications to the gallery system to collector bases to the way in which different um, magazines focus on certain artists and and so on and so forth and this is we we no matter how much knowledge you have and no matter how many contacts you have or how wide your network is and how much you know the way all of these structures work you're still part of it and you're still no matter how much of a positive force you want to be you're, you're still unknown to yourself negating the possibility of others you know moving into those spaces that you're occupying you know uh, and this is the challenge that that I feel like we all have like we are in a way kind of sometimes destroying one another not in a kind of nihilistic way but destroying one another because of our belief in what we we think we're doing <laughs> sometimes what we think other people are doing but 
you know, at the expense of the people that we're not engaging with at all, or we don't even know exists because we're not open to that conversation happening elsewhere because our art world might be too large or might be too small or might be too kind of like over-reliant on, on certain sources, on certain relationships, on certain networks and so on. And these are things that frighten me as well as um, make me feel very uh, insecure with what I think is, is good for the world, <laughs> uh, you know. With a more direct question, like what would be your recommendations to someone who's setting up an institution at this point in time <laughs> to not do it? <laughs> I mean, work with good people, take your time, know your limitations, know the limitations of the context, be as processual as possible with your thinking publicly, acknowledge your acknowledge whoever's in front of you um, at any particular moment. Sometimes moving forward, other times resting, sometimes sometimes just staying in place and, and maybe not trying to accelerate or mobilize all, all of the time. I think it's very good. I think it's very important to have a good plan. <laughs> and I mean, I, I mean, just to think about a time frame and what you, what you plan to do within that time frame with the resources that you per perhaps have at your disposal, financial, human resources, but then also the context of those resources. Uh, I think it's really always important for me to think about the relationship between the small and the large. Uh, and sometimes you're the small and sometimes you're the large, even, even within on a daily basis, this happens. Also to, to recognize that even though the organization may, may be experiencing like obstacles or obstruction in terms of its development or evolution or security or sustainability, that there are other organizations that are always in a lesser position than the organization that you're building yourself. Also, sometimes organizations should perhaps die, should, should, not, should not continue. And it's important to, 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 to realize the limitations of, of one's own belief in in what you're doing and also the organization itself it's important to work collectively to work together with others to listen attentively to try things out to experiment to explore um but then also to think about what the value of of what you're doing to others is and if it's no longer valuable or it no longer fits or it, or it feels like it's getting in the way then ask yourself why is it perhaps not working in the way you think it is or should be um so in terms of setting up it's also you know i i think it's wonderful to to be able to make decisions quickly as part of a small organization but then also you know that when you make certain decisions even if you make them with on your own or are able to do so or with others that somebody has to follow through those decisions and that always involves other people so I think working ethically, paying people well, um, also thinking about the conditions of their labor as well as the conditions of your own labor. I also am very currently invested in looking backwards as well as looking forward. I think there's been this constant obsession or overthinking or overemphasis on 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 the future and future thinking and so on. And I'm 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 maybe looking back a little bit more. Maybe, maybe trying to repeat things, repeat things over and over again, maybe trying the same thing out again, but slightly differently learning from what has 
uh, happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and maybe not, not in a kind of retrograde way or even in a kind of anachronistic looking back, but more like what is it that's changed and what is that's different? Well, what can be reimagined from the past and that, that we can that we can take in, into present? And this is where I'm at at the moment. Look, looking back a lot, I lost a very close friend earlier this year and I, I lost... Um, uh my sister uh just just before covid wow sorry to hear that thank you but i i i'm very so i so i'm very aware of the morbidity of some of my thinking at the moment or maybe this space of like in, in a, a little bit of mourning but you know and and then also being very resistant to i don't know the idea of the self that's emerging at the moment, the idea of this selfish self, mm-hmm. self, <laughs> I don't know, this obsession with self-care and this obsession with looking after oneself. And, and I, I don't, I think it's very, all those things are very important. I'm not rejecting that universally, but I, but I, but I am maybe rejecting this preoccupation with the self uh, as part of our artistic and, and contemporary curatorial practices more, more so. I mean, you know, I think that to talk about curating as a, as a space of care is, is ludicrous. Um, it's you know, when, when we look at like, you know, the, what's happened to physical, mental and psychological bodies over the last two to three years and, and well before that, but the spaces of care that are available to, to people who are vulnerable or the space of care to, that are available to people who are dying or have already passed away or mental, psychological spaces of care, all of these things like I've, I've been thinking a lot about and how, how are they really mobilized when someone is curating an exhibition and putting things on the wall and like getting loans from collectors and you know, uh, filling out, filling out <laughs> evaluation forms and, and securing funding with, you know, f- private foundations and, and grant giving, you know, armature of the states and, you know, this kind of care has, is, is, is important. Um, but, but it's definitely not as important as, as the care of life and life giving care and, and also the care that's required for for real change and the mm. transformative potentiality of of curating if it is to have a a very real politique a very real kind of relationship with the world i also was thinking a lot about maybe it's something we talked about before um around you know inhabiting or cohabiting certain spaces socially or or even you know what happens when you're doing things together in public in a gallery in a talk in a teaching space or also in an urban space in terms of some of your projects what kind of like belief do do we have in this moment in that moment when we're doing things together with others and the unpredictability of that moment and these moments of publicness that are that are supported and created then and, and really thinking of these spaces as as some sort of cure or some sort of spaces of curing you know curing something that's wrong or providing you know safer spaces in which you know difficult ideas and difficult thoughts and different arguments and different spaces of contestation can be mobilized as a way of really changing changing things uh, and to me curating was was one of those spaces that 
seem to be available to me uh, and to many others, and I still believe is, but certainly in the in the in the late eighties, early nineties, it felt like one of these spaces where you didn't have to be like an individual artist interested in your own thoughts. You could be somebody interested in the thoughts of other people and and hang out together and and somehow these could offer moments of publicness and potentiality uh, to cure like questions around privilege and class and accessibility and mobilizing um, careers and reputational economies and cultural capital and all these things that to me it seemed like the shift towards or this curatorial turn in discourse but also this organizational turn and this educational turn and all these turns discursive turns and so on, all these turns away from the self were a way to mobilize other ideas of the subject and other practices that that were not so individualistic and not so yeah. opportunistic and so forth. So this is this is why I think the, the, the issue around care and cure for me are, are, are somehow I'm thinking a lot about this at the moment around the body and around mental health and around grieving and mourning. And a lot of us have been thinking about these things as we, we've been on our own or we've been with our, our loved ones or we've been unable to be in touch with our loved ones for the last while. And these things are somehow impacting how I'm thinking about <laughs> organizations, exhibitions. Once again, a conversation with so much to unpack and further dwell on. Few things that immediately stay with me are Paul's emphasis on listening and being open to people who are not already in your circle or your echo chamber or those you don't know at all. He's also cast a very sober eye on the dynamics and power struggles of working in the cultural fields. Underlying, I believe, was a problematization of support structures as they often create a categorical competition leaving little room for collaboration within or across the scales of the current landscape of art institutions. Ultimately, his call to have imaginary spaces that can be actualized, despite all of these, is super valuable. Paul's enormous experience in working with various scales and in multiple ends of a spectrum when it comes to art-sustaining environments is far too valuable. His rightful riff on the concept of care towards the end and how it's been utilized in the art context is something to take note of. Now we will continue in the next episode with more from Paul, going deeper and also opening the floor to some crucial questions from our live audience. Highly Conversations are produced by Asla Altay and Sarprank Özer with Darya Yildiz as our associate producer. This episode was engineered by Arda Karaburçak and with music by Group Ses. This episode was also supported by a Moon and Stars project grant from the American Turkish Society. Finally, it goes without saying, but we really appreciate the support from you in helping us reaching more ears. Given the nature of platforms today, subscribing, liking, rating, following, or simply letting a friend know will help us enormously. So thank you and see you next time.